and welcome to Wine in Web 3. I'm Kelly Vero and this time I'm talking to Rob McMillan. He's one of the top wine business analysts in the United States. He has several times been named as one of the most influential people in the US wine industry. And he's been researching the wine business for decades, leveraging that experience and perspective to author Silicon Valley Bank's highly regarded annual State of the Wine Industry report. Take a listen to this exciting and exhilarating conversation we had about wine and banking. So first of all, like I do with everybody, tell us a little bit about you. I've been in banking 40 years, believe it or not, and um, started with uh, Bank of America. My first loan was to a small winery called Chateau du Lac, which nobody knows, but um, they probably know who that became, which was Jackson Family Winery. And uh, at the time, Jess Jackson was the owner and it was and I told him, you know, Lake County, California, I said, you know, Lake County, that's not even Napa, Sonoma, Mendocino. How how are you going to make it? (laughs) I don't know that you can. So everything, everything that I say that's predictive, just take that into consideration that I said Jackson Family Wine wasn't going to wasn't going to make it. Of course, it was my first job. So give me a break on that. Uh, but otherwise, uh, you know, went, went through school, um, got, started at B of A, uh, got my MBA, um, started with Silicon Valley Bank, and um, my job was to start these verticals, um, different business verticals, and and so wine wine is the second one that I started. Um, otherwise, I don't think it's that. You know, I'm a musician, uh, far better musician than I am banker. Actually, I'm ill suited for banking, as I tell people. Um, but uh, somehow I've managed to take, you know, the, the God-given gifts I have and you know, stuff them into a square box. Um, so I'm a bit of a messy thinker too. <laughs> are you a jazz drummer or what type of drummer are you? I, I play jazz all my life, yeah. Uh, yeah. I started when I was five. Okay, so who's your jazz drumming hero? My favorite drummer is Billy Cobham. Oh, right. Um, he's uh, just uh, an awesome guy. But I go back to Buddy Rich. Yeah. And, yeah, guys like that. So, um, yeah. Nice. I did spend some time, as you can probably tell, working in the music industry. So I've met quite a lot of people who, you know, count folks like Buddy Rich as being a real inspiration towards. Because most people that work in rock and roll are all jazz drummers. Um, yeah. yeah. When you find a drummer in a rock band, they're always jazz drummers. <laughs> well, that's how you learn to play. Exactly. You know, if, if you're... You know, if you everybody can play four four beats to the minute, but you know, trying to play seven eight and understand music is a little hard. I wanted to be Dave Lombardo when I was growing up, but no one ever bought me a drum kit, so I could never. <laughs> I could never join. Slayer. <laughs> well, your parents are smart. <laughs> your, your parents yeah. are smart. I have I have uh, five siblings and and two uh, two other brothers, and both of them were drummers. So. Oh my gosh, where did you all play in the in the garage or? Um, we played on top of our furniture. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyways, what's the what's uh, the a, story about wealth and wine? Do you think I'm talking to you today from Switzerland? You're part of Silicon Valley Bank. What's this fascination? Do you think is it a luxury or an asset holding or some kind of holy grail type experience, or does it boil down to something that's more basic than that? Well, uh, wine is a, an interesting product because um, if you think about it in economic terms, it's both a commodity and a luxury good. And a luxury good is defined as a straight up and down demand curve, which means 
when you change price, nothing happens to the volume that's sold. It's still the same volume sells even if you change price. That's a luxury good. And the other the other side is commodity. If you change by half of a, a pence, <laughs> then uh, you know you're going to change. You could have volume drop off the, the the shelf. Very few products do that. So it's really hard to talk about wine um, in any sort of sense um, with, without defining which end of the demand curve you're on. So you're talking about the luxury side of it. And, um, you know, that obviously goes back eons. Um, you know, wine started a very long time ago. Actually, in, in, even the French acknowledgement started in Georgia uh, about 15,000 years ago. And uh, it's been around for a while. So um, people have figured out how to make good wine in good places and, and make, you know, a lot of wine in other places. And um, I think for... Uh, for wealthy consumers, they don't care how much they're paying. They just want good wine. And I think once you start drinking good wine, you, you realize that <laughs> all the other stuff you were drinking, you don't want to you don't want to go back to. So it's it's one of those things that once you get into, it's hard to get out. I agree. Of. I work in technology, and you know, I was told from a kind of young age that you really know you've made it when you can afford to buy a bottle of. Well, back in my day, it was called. Um, uh, uh, I think it's called Pomery now, but it was called Pomade or something very British like this. But it was a, a sort of barely a wine mix. It was more like a pear perry cider. But you really felt like you'd made it because you saw those sparkly bubbles inside the glass and you knew. Today I work in technology and I'm in Switzerland and it's still the pinnacle of achievement, you know. You crack open a bottle of wine at the end of a long week or a bottle of champagne if you get a good deal. So we still have that. But in terms of it feeding into the general um, mainstream you mentioned good wine. I also work in art. I see these things as being very, very related to each other. Oh, very much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the fun thing to me about about fine wine is is you know you you have a vintage date. It's like okay, what did I do in 1989? Where was I? Um, you know, you have a, a location. Oh, yeah, I was in Burgundy <laughs> once. You know, that was fun. Uh, or I was in Napa Valley. Or I was, you know, so, you, you know, you can relate to that from a travel experience. I was just in Croatia. I just had some really uh, good primitivo in Croatia. Uh, I mean, literally, I was just, just there. And, uh, and so, you know, I took a picture of that bottle and I, I know what it is and I want to, you know, go find it. I really enjoyed it. And it was it was a good, good deal. So I think all of those things are a little bit like art. Uh, you know, the flavor profiles, where it comes from, but it's an emotional thing. Um, it's not just, it's not just a, you know, a bottle of, of um, ethanol. It's, uh, it's got something, something else to it. And then how does that bring you into being a, a banker in a wine industry? And, and especially in a region that's rich with wine? Silicon Valley Bank started to uh, go through some rethinking of, of their models back in, back in the early 90s. And uh, I was a senior lender at that point, and I was was tasked with finding new business verticals, <clears throat> like you know, contractors or or wineries or whatever to do. And so um, I was just going to do the business plans. And uh, so the first one I came up with was mortuaries, because I thought it, I saw mortuaries as a growth opportunity, because uh, everybody was you know dying to get in. Right? Everyone was dying to get in. Yeah. <laughs> Stop stealing my jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, my boss, I showed it to him. My boss says, 
Rob, it's a good idea. Not one of your best. <laughs> what, what do you mean? He goes, well, who the hell's going to work for you? <laughs> and I was, you know, I'd done all this, you know, nice four quadrant Boston Consulting Group chart and, you know, tried to show why this was such a great idea. Swaltz and, and yeah. uh And I forgot the practical implication of, yeah, who, who the heck wants to, you know, go to their their class reunion, 10-year, 20-year class reunion and say, yeah, I work at the mortuary division for Silicon Valley. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants to do that. And uh, so he said, go do something more fun. And so, you know, I just... So well, what what else is fun? I said, well, wine's fun. I thought about wine because I had a little exposure to it, and so I wrote the business plan and um, had no intention of running it. But a year after it was after it took off, and and it did to everything that was in that plan, it, it was a hundred percent accurate. It was unusually accurate uh, in predictive uh, its predictive nature. But a year after I wrote it, and the the, the industry group was doing very well, and they let the guy that was running it um, they let him go somewhere else. And um, they said I had to move to Napa, and I said that I don't want to move. I mean, <laughs> I'm in I'm in Silicon Valley. I'm I'm where the action is. You know, there's stuff happening here. Yeah. And uh, after they figured out that I was serious, I didn't want to move. They thought it was going to be great. Who wouldn't want to move to Napa? Oh, I don't. And, um, and then finally they said, Well, what's it going to cost? And I said, Well, that's that's a, a different question. <laughs> if you're going to throw that variable into the equation, then yeah, we we probably can find a, a middle ground. So uh, so that's how I ended up where I am, and uh, it's been a pretty good run. I, this is um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank is uh, oh, we're about like the 25th largest bank in the United States now, uh, publicly traded, very large uh, from that standpoint. Uh, I think in market cap, last I checked, we were like number 15 in, in the United States. Wow. The wine division is uh, a very small part of it now. But um, I think I'm employee number four in terms of tenure now. I've been been here 30, uh, 32 years this year. Shh, don't tell anyone. Shh. Keep those numbers <laughs> to yourself. Yeah. Just well, take it young and fresh. <laughs> we'll keep yeah. it between ourselves. Yeah. Well, but, I, I still I feel great, so I'm gonna work as long, you know, yeah, work forever. Fine. I think you're one of the top influential people in this business, so you've seen it all in this sector and this vertical as you describe it. You're incredibly influential, and you think about wine in totally different ways to people who are making wine. So. Give me an idea about, if you can, about how you analyze wine businesses and what you what you kind of base those estimations and that quantitative or qualitative analysis upon. Yeah, you know, the wine industry is, uh, you know, when I, when I did start this business um, and, and I decided I was going to go run it, um, I thought, you know, how hard can it really be? Um, you know, I'd, I'd done the analytics on it, but I didn't, I really didn't know. Um, and once you get into it, you realize it's far more complex and it doesn't follow the same kind of business models because of it's a, partly it's because it's a regulated product. It's, it's part of our U.S. Constitution with the repeal of prohibition and the way that wine is uh, moved around um, around the country. It's like having 50 different countries because it, all the states um, have their own their own rules of regulation. And sometimes that goes down to to um, at the retail level down to counties. Um, 
Texas has got a lot of counties, some of which are dry still. And they don't they don't allow the sale of, of alcohol in their county. So it's it's a very complex thing. It took me about ten years to I think I think really understand it and have um, have good instinct. But you also have to realize that the that the world changes. And um, so if I, when I first got into it, it was actually quite simple. The the wine industry was taking off. Not all wine was good. Uh, the premium wine industry, I should say, was taking off, and not all wine was good. And so the dominant competitive issue at that point was. Can you make good wine? And if you made good wine, you could sell it. So from the you know the early 90s until about 2000, pretty much all I had to do is tr- taste a glass of wine, and if it was good, I'd bank them. It was that it was really that simple. And then um, and then sales became difficult, and so sales became the dominant competitive issue. If you could sell wine, because everybody had figured out how to make good wine, pretty much. Uh, you know, you didn't really have to worry about smelling the cork anymore. Uh, generally speaking, it uh, you know it's it's all good I mean, it, at all price points. Wine has become much better at all price points, um, and um, and so that really was um, I'm going to say 2000 until let's call it uh, 2015, 16, 17, a little post crash, I guess. Um, somewhere in there. And now the dominant competitive issue is really it's it's management because there's so many different models that work and there's so many that don't. And so you have to be aware of of um, you know the, all the all the things that could come up. And you know, I, as an example, one of the changes right now is climate change. And um, you know, there's a lot of things you can mitigate in terms of risk, uh, but one that's very hard to mitigate if you're an agricultural product is water. You know, um, we have. Uh, I, I run a couple surveys every year uh, for the industry, and and uh, this last uh, last November we ran it, and I was asking about water in California mostly. And uh, you know, if you're going to be short, if you think you're going to or could be short, you know, how are you going to mitigate it? It's interesting to see the numbers of people that say, "If I have to, I'll truck it in." And, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's one way to do it. But, you know, the expense of that and think about now with with increased fuel costs and then you add on top of that all the other stuff that's going on in the country now with um, uh, supply chains that are messed up, can't get glass in, in the right time. Uh, you know, so so bottling can can kind of be screwed up uh, inflation uh, and then change in consumer patterns. Um, you know, my generation, the boomer generation is. Uh, we think of wine in a very different way than the rest of, of uh, the consumer base. And uh, the rest of the consumer base looks at wine as being another alcoholic beverage. And they all, they, as I was saying, you know, it's, it's good. All alcohols become premiumized. And so the consumer today, the average consumer, looks at wine as being in competition with spirits, beer, ready-to-drink, cocktails, you know, uh, many different things. So... Uh, it, it's very different from from my generation who uh, saw wine as a premiumized product. And it was the only one. Beer sucked and spirit sucked when when premium wine took off. So my generation locked onto that. Um, and you know now we have a uh, we have just as my generation starts to move through the queue, uh, there's no question that the demand the demand patterns overall are going to change. So. You know, when you say, "How do I look at uh, you know a winery?" It's it you you got to look at management. You got to have pretty bright people. You can't just have a winemaker. Um, you got to have somebody with 
some sort of a, a path to market and uh, somebody that's very thoughtful. And especially uh, today with uh, direct consumer sales becoming such a large part of the uh, premium or luxury goods market, it's understanding the technology that's available to help you sell. And that's changing, you know, every year. So it's pretty dynamic that. today. Yeah. I was going to ask what role innovation plays as well in that experience because obviously as we look at the sort of long tail of the wine market as it were we have got climate change on one side and in a, a, the first couple of episodes that we did for wine and web 3 we did talk about you know innovation and technology in this space and how it was going to change the face of wine especially premium wine because obviously where there's premium wine there's more money to spend in innovation but a lot of times I saw some of the answers that were coming back was we actually like the old ways because the old ways of being able to do everything from aquification, uh, et cetera, seem to be a suitable means to an end for now because we don't all have crystal balls. We can't see what's happening in the future. It seems pointless investing in machinery or technology that we don't know five, 10 years from now whether it's going to work. It's a kind of shot in the dark, isn't it? But that adds to the overall value of the business, right? Well, it, it adds to the risk. Of course, um, yeah. You know, the, the wine business is notoriously conservative and they don't change very much. It's, you know, it's been around forever. And, you know, if it, if it worked for the Georgians and the French, uh, uh, then, you know, it'll work for them. But it's not really true. I mean, things things do evolve. And um, and you, you just can't be a traditionalist in a world that's changing around you. It, it's critical to understand. For, exist, for example, let's just talk about consumer demand. So my generation was about displaying wealth. You know, we we drove our BMWs and it had numbers on them, the better, the higher the numbers, the better. You know, we wore Jordache jeans. I don't even know if they're around anymore, but our labels were on and we wore Izod shirts. You know, we displayed our wealth. We wanted to show people how successful we were. Yeah. Current generation doesn't think that way. It's an, an anathema to their thinking. They yeah. think about, you know, social equality, uh, you know, opportunity in a different way. It's not a dog eat dog world. They're also thinking about balancing work and, and, uh, uh, and personal lives, things that we didn't think about. Um, you know, I, I made a comment earlier about wines plant-based. Yeah. We don't sell wine as a product that um, that actually has the same values as, as a consumer that's coming up. And and it's interesting that we that we don't. As an example, health health is a big deal. Um, my generation, you know, you put it in your mouth if it if it tasted good and it wasn't bad for you. You know, the current generation is more about well. I only put things in my body that are good for me. It's yeah. it's a it's a change in in uh, things. So, um, the wine industry doesn't even put calories on their bottles, which is part of health. Which is you know how, how much how many calories am I if you're counting calories? How many calories am I getting at this bottle, and where do I want to allocate my my calories? It's just a starting point. But but the interesting thing is it's got all these other components to it that really are of the same. For instance. With fine wine, you you can you know exactly where it was grown. If it was grown in the Napa Valley, Sonoma Valley, Santa Barbara, you know uh, Oregon. If it's so you know a wide uh, a wide appellation, or you know down to even even vineyards, you can you can get wines that are vineyard designated. So you know exactly where it comes from. You know it's plant based. Um, you know we don't talk about 
uh, how much we do now, in, uh, especially in the fine wine category, either biodynamic or uh, you know, totally sustainable, not using any pesticides, like what is it, glycophosphate or yeah, uh, glycophosphate. Roundup, whatever you call that. Um, you know, that, that's, that, that changed probably 25 years ago. Uh, but we don't talk about that. It's just the way the business does things. And people don't know that. You know, they don't know that what they're getting is a, a natural product. Matter of fact, wine, as far as I know, is the only thing that can actually, by itself, it's got all the ingredients, convert itself to a different product. You know, grapes have, they got sugar, they have yeast, um, and, when you, and when you squish them, it turns into wine um, all by itself. Which is why probably it's fifteen thousand years old. It wasn't that hard. To, <laughs> wasn't that hard to figure, you know, figure out when somebody found grapes and they put them in a in a pail and it fermented. Uh, so, anyways, it's uh, you know it's an industry that has to evolve and and it has to adopt technology. Uh, you know, water is a big technological component. You you want to put sensors in your vines to understand how much water demand is there. Um, it used to be that we flooded our vineyards. We just would, you know, open up a, a gate valve in a in a trench, and it would, you know, all the water would would rush into into the vineyard. And it's a horrible waste of water. And the Israelis figured out drip irrigation. Yeah. And so that's an advance. Um, and so th- those that, that say, well, I don't want to follow technology because I don't know I don't know where it's going, are the ones that are going to be caught behind. You know, I don't think anybody would think of drip irrigation as being a technological advance at this point. But when it came out, it was it was huge. It saved it saved water. It saved electricity. Um, so there's there's so many reasons to be open Benefits, to change. Yeah. We don't have to change our product as a as a base product. The, the product can stand on its own, but we have to uh, adapt to a changing world. With the with the con- the rise of consumerism, wanting more of a premium wine, do we see ourselves in a situation? the same way that maybe the microbreweries and the beer industry were a couple of years ago, where you have these sort of microbreweries, you have very specific bespoke labels or releases of beers, etc. cetera. Uh, do we see that same thing happening in a regular grocery store or are, are we like quite a way off from these bijou and boutique labels being available in the mainstream? I don't think they'll be available in the mainstream. I think it's going the other way. And uh, so at least in the United States in particular, uh, direct consumer sales, you know, for uh, if you're going to take your wine and you're going to sell it to your wholesaler, who's going to sell it to the retailer, who's going to sell it to you, everybody's got to take a a margin on that. And um, you might might get a 20% – profit margin, gross profit margin on something you sell to the wholesaler. If you're selling it direct to the consumer, you might get 50 to 60%. Now, it's more expensive because you're in charge of marketing. You know, uh, most most people actually have to build a, a, you know, a tasting room to make that happen. And, and then there's all of the people you have to hire, and that's becoming increasingly expensive, uh, you know, particularly now. So there's more overhead that goes with it. And, you know, you go back 10 years, 15 years for sure. And um, it was about, you know, it was about the same in terms of net profit, bottom line, whether you sold it to the wholesaler or you did direct to consumer. Today, you know, with technology and, um, and a lot of practice, uh, it makes more sense to sell direct. So unless you as a consumer can figure out t- the technology to understand where all of these small boutique producers 
are, are selling, uh, unless you get involved with their clubs, unless you go to their wineries, et cetera, you're just going to miss out on, on that wine. Uh, grocery stores will be a place to get, you know, low-priced wine that is made in mass quantities, uh, because especially chains, right? Because that's that's the way it's all set up now. Distributors are consolidated. Uh, one distributor represents more than half of total wine sales in the United States now. Um, we have, we have you know the largest uh, winery in the world, Gallo, uh, in the United States, and uh, they sell a, a large part. The, the top 25 wineries, uh, pardon me, the, the top uh, 13 wineries represent 75% of total wine sales. And so the the other the other twenty five percent the other let's call it ten thousand wineries they got that twenty five percent. There's not enough to put all over the country. So the only way you're going to get to them is is through technology, through um, you know enlightened uh, producers that figure out how to get you know direct to the consumer. That's where the special wine's going to go, and that's that's how we're going to all have to find it. Sounds like an opportunity for somebody like me, <laughs> because I'm always looking at ways to be able to innovate in technology, especially for things like Web3 and the metaverse, etc. So watch this space, Rob. My final question, and I hate to use this term, but I'm going to use it anyway, is about COVID. Was it the great leveler for the wine industry? What were the opportunities and yeah. did we lose a lot of wineries during that period and, and how will they come back? Well, the interesting thing about wineries is you don't really lose them. They might change hands, um, but they don't go. They don't really go away. Um, you know, the physical plants there. And, but we really didn't have that many failures. Um, it, the, the industry is incredibly resilient. Um, and again, this is a tale of two two sides of the industry. So the big the big producers, those those thirteen wineries that I was talking about a few seconds ago. Um, they killed it because th they had um, their wine in grocery stores, and grocery stores were for a period of time there when during the lockdowns, the only place you could get wine. And so, you know, people were, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's something I tell people, you know, it's a it's a parlor question that you can ask. Uh, you know what, you know what did wine and toilet paper have in common during the, you know, during the uh, the pandemic? And the answer is obvious. It's, they were both hoarded. And um, and so the the large producers did very well. The, the small producers who sell in, in fancy restaurants and through their tasting rooms, both of those were closed. So they had to they had to rely on Zoom technology to kind of reach the consumer, let people know they're out, have curbside delivery. Uh, you know you, you know we could still deliver uh, by common carrier and that kind of thing. So it was a you know a, a large learning lesson. It's something that I've been talking about to the industry now for at least five years, probably more like seven now, or eight even, um, is the, the problem with um, looking at one channel, having one channel. You have to have omni-channel. That's the way everybody else is going. And, you know, to think that we could all be in one channel. I, I you know, We all talk about experiences, and I say you got to take the experience on the road. you got to figure, you know, how many people are going to come from Minnesota to your winery, wherever that is. Uh, annually, maybe once, you know, somebody that's passionate, they might do it every year. But generally speaking, it's going to be maybe once every five years or something like that. And that's who you're selling. So if you want to reach a consumer, if you want to grow your your brand, you you have to do outreach. You have to figure out how to get to those customers. And years ago, it was impossible because you'd have to use national advertising. And and we didn't have an internet, right? So it was snail mail and other, you know, stuff people's mail. It really just didn't work. It was too expensive. Well, today the technology is there, and and we can do it. 
um, you know, the clubs ended up being the wine clubs ended up being the kind of the saving grace that did very well uh, for the, the the fine wine producers during the recession. So um, coming out of it, they learned a lot of things, which is, yeah, we can sell we we can take the experience on the road. It's a different experience. Um, you know, we have to look at these other channels. Um, we have to be more uh, thoughtful, you know, uh, about benchmarks. Um, we have to use technology in the direct sales channel that's available now. So I think there's a lot of things. You know, it's, it, as I said, it's a very traditional industry. It's not one that likes to change. But when you're forced to change, uh, you do. And, and that's what's happened. And so uh, Internet sales, an example, represented somewhere around for the fine wine industry – at the producer level, uh, roughly one to two percent of total sales, you know, annually. Uh, well, now it's thirteen percent. So that's not going backwards. Uh, that's a that's something that the industry's learned, and it'll grow. It'll keep it'll keep growing as you would expect. So, a lot of things to learn. You know, change creates opportunities, and yeah. certainly this is one of those circumstances where uh, change created opportunities, and people stepped into the vacuum. That's fascinating, and we'll continue to do so, obviously, as we sort of change our general bioculture as human beings, I think. Yep. You know, we're changing every year from huge flus to COVID to, to now monkeypox, so we'll see what's next. And you're right about what you say with regards to innovation and evolution. We've got to keep moving forward. We can't kind of stand still in the wineries business. It's not possible. But I'm not going to take any more of your time. Jazz drummer, dad, wine business analyst and all-round top influential wine dude. Thank you, Rob McMillan from Silicon Valley Bank. You're absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for your time. Happy to do it. Have a great time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Wow, that was amazing. I learned loads about banking in the wine industry. Thanks so much to Rob McMillan for that episode. It was really exciting. And it's really making me think so much more about the future of wine in the metaverse. I'm looking forward to doing more of these episodes and I'd love you to come with me. So why don't you keep in the loop with everything Cuvée Collective by taking a look for us on Discord, Instagram and cuvéecollective.com. And don't forget to download the podcast wherever good pods are casted. Until next time.